in AD 249, a mysterious plague swept across the Roman Empire. Before germ theory, all they really knew was that sick people make more sick people. And at the height of its, of its demise, there was more than 5,000 people dying every day. And so around the city walls, you would see just stacks and piles of human corpses all around. And so it began to become so tense in society that neighbor began to turn on neighbor and friend began to turn on friend. And what they would actually begin to do is they would begin to go and report to the authorities people that they suspected might be sick so that they could be taken away. Sometimes they would report people that were living next door, people that they had laughed and joked and reminisced with, people that they loved and had been friends with. Sometimes they would report their own family members and it was an act of sheer self-preservation to go and to be a whistleblower for those that they thought or perceived or, or wondered might be sick and those that were blown on would go and they would have to be quarantined with the other sick people and being with the other sick people if they weren't already sick would become sick. And so it began to perpetuate a cycle of death. At the time, the fledgling church was just beginning, and it accounted for less than 2% of the Roman Empire's population. At about 1 million people, they, would, they were spread and dispersed throughout the empire, and, and it was not at all that they were able to avoid the plague that was afflicting everyone else. In fact, what they did was completely countercultural. What they did was, would have been viewed in their day as being totally foolish. When one of them got sick, rather than turning them in, rather than blowing the whistle on them, they would go and care for them. And as a result, the infection rate was much higher among Christians because they would go where the sick people were and, and right in the middle of the sickness, they would minister to them and they would care for them. But the ironic thing was, that though the infection rate among Christians was higher, the survival rate was higher. That because they were cared for, because they were ministered to, because they were nurtured, that even though there were more of them that were infected, more of them would survive. And in fact, the Lord used that to give Christians a larger stake in the population of the Roman Empire so that within 50 years, the church would grow from 1 million to 6 million, some 10% of the empire. There was a Christian there uh, of Carthage by the name of Cyprian, and he wrote these words. He said, what a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. What sublimity to stand erect amid the desolation of the human race and not to lie prostrate when those who have no hope in God but rather to rejoice and to embrace the benefit of the occasion that in thus bravely showing forth our faith and by suffering endured, going forward to Christ by the narrow way that Christ trod, we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. That is, they discovered that more people lived as a result of sacrificial love than they did by ruthless self-preservation. And that's a word for us in the midst of a pandemic. It's a word for us in the midst of the pandemonium that all of us are living in, the, in the midst of, of economic meltdown. 
that the church doesn't run and turn into itself in ruthless self-preservation, but the church runs to their crosses at the cost to themselves that they might help more find Christ. I think it very well may have been that Cyprian, as he wrote those words, was thinking about what Paul says in Acts chapter 14. I want us to turn there this morning and get a word that can encourage us through such chaotic times in our own lives and in our own world. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 and we're going to look at verse 19 through 23 together. God's word says this, it says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day. He went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You know, some have said, that the very safest place that we can be is inside the will of God. And I think what we typically mean by that is that if I will obey God well enough, if I will go where God has called for me to go, if I will do what God has called for me to do, if, if I will be faithful enough in church and read the scriptures often enough, then my income will be stable. My marriage will be healthy. My children will be obedient. My life will be calm. I, I will avoid anxiety. I will avoid depression. I will avoid chaos. I will avoid discouragement. I will avoid despair. That if I can just do all of the right things and go to all of the right places, then I will get to live the, the quiet, comfortable, sanitized life that I crave. And Paul would beg to differ. In fact, Acts chapter 13 and 14 go to great lengths to show that Paul is right in the center of God's word, or God's will when, he, when this happens to him. That he is sent out from the church at Antioch to go on a, on a missionary journey and they send him out. And as no sooner do they send him out by the call of the Holy Spirit does he come under opposition. And he goes from town to town all through the region of Galatia sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and sharing that they can have hope in, in, a, in the singular son that had come for their good. And wherever he goes, he faces hardship. And so it's right there in the center of God's will. It's right there in the center of obedience to who God had called him to be. It is right in the answer of the call of God on his life that Paul is stoned. That he is stoned. So we learn from Paul that suffering isn't excluded from God's will. Suffering isn't excluded from God's will. See, when we believe that everything good in our lives is given to us by God because of the good that we do, and everything bad in our lives is the result of the bad that we do, that everything good in our lives is the result of our obedience, and everything bad in our lives is the result of our disobedience, then our hope and our confidence is not in Jesus, and in the obedience of Jesus, and in the righteousness of Jesus, and in the good of Jesus. No, if that is our mentality, if our goal 
is to balance the cosmic scale by having more good in our life than we have bad, then our hope is not in Christ. It's not in the gospel. Our hope is in ourselves. Our hope is in whatever karma has to hand out to us. Our our hope is that we can receive cosmic entitlements that we believe to be owed to us. It's to believe that we can constantly make our lives better by simply picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. But ironically, if we're doing good so that we can balance out our bad, even that good is self-serving, isn't it? And corrupt. Even good done for the purpose of, of increasing our stake in life and even good done for the purpose of, of making our lives better is good, is not really actually good at all. It is good with an ulterior motive. See, the truth is none of us, none of us want a cosmic economy in which we get what we deserve. None of us want a cosmic economy in which we reap everything that we have sown. None of us want a cosmic economy in which our moral behavior and our moral, or our moral standards are the result of our lives. No, your 401k bottoming out and your business slowing to a halt and your elderly parents on lockdown, they are, that is not the result of your moral performance. It's the result of brokenness. It's the result of brokenness. See, it's true that if you rebel against the design of God, if, if you disobey the word of God, that you are inviting chaos into your life. It's, it's true that when you rebel against the design of God, that you will reap particular consequences in your life. But it is also true that if you run after God with all of your heart, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, that you will know what it is like to die upon the cross. That you will know what it is like to have sleepless nights. That you will know what it is like to hurt deeper than you could understand. That you will know what it's like to not necessarily know where your paycheck is coming from and how your family is going to be provided for. It is not, it is not exclusive from the Christian life to be, suffering is not excluded from the Christian life. And that's what we're seeing in this pandemic. This pandemic is afflicting the godly and the ungodly. It's afflicting those who who love God with all of their mind, all their heart, all of their strength, and those who detest him and deny him altogether. It is the groaning of a creation that is broken. That's what this pandemic is. This pandemic is the groaning of a broken world. And when you have broken people living in a broken world, you can be certain that suffering is quick to ensue. In fact, suffering pursues us as we pursue Christ, doesn't it? That's what we see in Paul, is it not? That Paul, living in the will of God, goes from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra to Derby, And everywhere that Paul goes, suffering is quick to follow. That his opponents don't even seem to actually care about their communities. They don't even seem to actually care about their deities. That what they care about is the destruction of Paul's ministry. That what they care about is that Paul would suffer and that Paul would hurt. And it may be that Paul was thinking of this when he wrote to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
That if you aim to live your life on mission for the glory of God, that what you can expect in your life is the pursuit of opposition, the pursuit of hardship, the pursuit of difficulty, that the spiritual warfare in which we are all engaged will rage against you and that the evil day will show up at your front door. And so I wonder... I wonder how many of you would be, have to just acknowledge that you're exhausted. You're exhausted. That all of your life you have worked and labored and ran to stay one step ahead of suffering. That all of your life that you have worked and went and worked 60 hours a week and had a side hustle here and tried to buy all the lessons that you could buy for, for, so that your family could be one step ahead of pain and sorrow and disadvantage. And work as you have and build your business as you have and lead your family as you have and run as you have. All you find now is the economy collapsing around you. Your business on the verge of shutting down and your children unsure if they're going to make it. That no matter what you've done, how hard you've worked, how hard you've run, that suffering has pursued you. And suffering has landed at your door. And so when I say, when I say that suffering is not excluded from the will of God, that doesn't sound like good news to you. In fact, you might even say that I am angry with God. Can I confess to you that I had to, I had to tell the Lord that this morning? That I've been angry. That I've been angry that I don't get to gather with my church this morning. That I'm angry for the interruption that I've experienced. I'm angry about the unrest that's around me. I'm angry about the unknown. And I think when we consider that this is within the will of God, it can be a natural reaction to say, God, I, I know that you have said that you love me, and I know that you have said that you will provide for me, and I know that you have said that you will be there for me, but right now it doesn't feel like it, and it doesn't look like it. And so maybe you're just tempted to throw your hands up and wonder what relevance Jesus even has to your suffering there. But this is good news. This is good news. That the good news, the gospel, is that suffering is included in God's plan. That it is not based upon your moral performance. That it is not based upon your ability to outweigh your good with your bad. That this is about brokenness, but it's about brokenness that has not caught God off guard. Brokenness that has not surprised him at all. That it is not God pacing the floors of heaven, unsure of what is to go. No, it is brokenness that is working to reveal his glory and to bring about your good. That your suffering is not random and your suffering is not wasted. Instead, God is going to work through our suffering to end our suffering. This is the good news. That in every painful day, in every sleepless night, in every unexpected calamity that comes upon us, that God is there and God has willed it and God is working through it to promote his glory and to advance our good. What makes this story especially powerful is that Paul's suffering doesn't stop him. Paul's suffering doesn't stop him. Can you imagine? Paul is going forth into Lystra to preach the gospel. 
And from two cities back, they've come and they've pursued him. And in, a, in a, an angry mob of, of vigilante justice, they surround him and they begin to pick up rocks right there in the city streets and they throw rocks at his face. They hit him in the face, hit him in the nose, hit him in the eyes, hit him in the side of the head, hit him in the chest, hit him in the legs. Blood pouring from Paul's face, his nose likely broken, his, his head throbbing, swelling from head to, to, to toe until ultimately he's unconscious on the ground and they drag him, drag him as though he's a deer out of the woods outside the city and they just leave him there assuming he's dead, hoping he's dead, wanting him dead. The disciples that he's made there around the city come and they begin to gather around and I don't know if they were praying, I don't know if they were singing a hymn, I don't know if they were astonished and in silence, but there they are gathered around this bludgeoned apostle when suddenly he begins to move again. When surprisingly he begins to move again. And you can imagine them running in to help Paul up out of his broken down condition. And they pick and they help Paul to his feet. And it's amazing what Paul does, isn't it? How would you respond? I, I can tell you if it's me, this is a closed door, right? God has closed a door for me. Th this is a good opportunity for me to take it to the house. This, this is a great opportunity for Paul to go and to buy an apostle's retirement cottage over on the Sea of Galilee. Do you know what Paul does? Paul takes and he limps himself back into Lystra where they had just stoned. In fact, if we were to go and we were to look at all of Paul's missionary journeys, what we would find is that all of Paul's missionary journeys were traced in blood. You see, suffering doesn't excuse you from God's call. That if suffering is included in God's will, then suffering cannot excuse you from God's call. That in fact, suffering is a strategic advantage for the church. So Paul goes back into Lystra. He goes back into the same place that he's just been. And then he goes on to Derby. And do you know what it says? That as he goes, the place that has just stoned him, the place that has just been a riot, he goes there and now they hear his message. Now they listen to him. And now it says they have, he goes and he makes many disciples. Now he is able to strengthen the church and to encourage the church. See, the church exists because suffering exists. If the gospel is God coming into his own creation, which has fallen under the curse of sin, so that its brokenness might be overcome, so that there might be a new earth, so that there might no, may no longer be any separation between him and what he has made, then his church has been formed out of his work in that broken creation. That his church has been fashioned out of the brokenness so that it might minister to the brokenness and so that through it, Christ might overcome the brokenness. That we are the result of brokenness and we are the hope of brokenness. That suffering isn't just what the church experiences, it's how the church advances. See, brokenness is a collective experience among humanity, isn't it? doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're born into affluence or into poverty. It doesn't matter if you're born healthy or handicapped. It doesn't matter if you're born in America or you're born in Africa. 
It doesn't matter if you're born into a Christian family or into an Islamic family. You'll suffer. You're going to suffer. You're going to hurt. You're going to know sorrow. You're going to know betrayal. You're going to know what it's like to lay down in the bed and have trouble going to sleep. You're going to know what it's like to have your heart race and your hands tremble and your stomach not. It's a universal humanitarian experience. But do you know what's uncommon about Christian, the Christian experience with suffering? It's that we have hope in the midst of it. It's that we have hope in the midst of it. That in a world of darkness, that we have the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That in a world that is spiraling out of control, that we have the certainty that there is a God through whom and for whom and by whom is holding all things together. That we, though hurt and though sinful and though at times unbearably afflicted, can have confidence that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. And so what suffering provides for us is not a time in which the church backs down. Not a time in which the church stops but a time in which the church advances with her message, not running from hardship, but like those Christians so many millennia ago, running into the midst of the pain, running toward the suffering, running toward the hardship, running toward the affliction, to be able to share in compassion and share in hope. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is very reflective about his suffering. In fact, he may have been thinking about this when in chapter 4 he says, we have, been, we have been struck down, but we have not been destroyed. That's how we feel right now, isn't it? Struck down. But Christian, can I promise you, though we have been struck down, we have not been destroyed. We will not be destroyed. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. The diseases of our time will not triumph over us. The hardships that we know will come to an end. The economic collapse one day will look like ruins as we walk across streets of gold. And so Paul, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he writes this. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Indeed, we felt that we had received the same sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you catch that? That Paul has given us here his rationale for going back to Lystra. That Paul is giving us his rationale for pressing on into Derbian and headed back to Iconium and back to Antioch where he faced so much suffering and so much oppression. That our suffering is accomplishing the mission of the church, not stopping it. And suffering brings credibility to the church. You see that? He says, why have we been so afflicted? Why are we facing such opposition? Why is God allowing this to come? He says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. I think it is one of the common albatrosses of the American church that we have believed that we can minister to a bloodied, a bloodied world in a clean suit. And so for us, if we live without affliction and we live without hardship and we live without suffering, 
our hope is only philosophical. Our hope is only theoretical. We don't know if it's actually credible. We don't know if it's actually substantial. But when you have walked to the valley of the shadow of death, when you have been there on the graveside of your child, when you have been there and experienced the loss of someone you so dearly love, when you have watched and put the close sign up in your business window for the last day, when you don't know where next week's paycheck is coming from, and in that moment you have the peace of Jesus Christ abiding in you, and you have a peace that is beyond all understanding, and you can know that if he provides for the birds of the air, how much more will he provide for me, his son, his daughter, daughter whom he loves then then your hope is not theoretical your hope is not philosophical your hope is credible and substantial that if we are going to have a credible message to a broken world we have to show how we have walked through brokenness with the very same hope and church right now the world is watching us that is the opportunity that has been afforded us this day That is the opportunity that has been afforded as you watch your 401k dwindle to almost nothing. That is the opportunity for for you to minister and to bear witness to your children of how substantial Jesus is when you call the family together and you say, we will not fear for he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control and so mom and dad we don't know how this is all going to work out but what we can tell you is that we serve a king who reigns that's the hope you can give to your employees to your colleagues and suffering brings humility to the church doesn't it brings credibility to the church, and it brings humility to the church. That's what he says. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, our instinct is to believe that we can do what we can't do. Our natural reflex in a moment like this is to begin scheming, isn't it? It's to begin coming up with all of these strategies and all of these plans and how we're going to thrive in the midst of all, how we're going to overcome our hardship, how we're going to hold our family together, how we're going to hold our church together, how we're going to hold our faith together, how we're going to do all of these things. But you know what? Suffering, Suffering is life's most effective teacher of life's most difficult lesson, that you're not strong enough. You can't do it. This is beyond you. Your health is beyond you. Doesn't matter how many, much organic food you have, doesn't matter how many days a week you go to the gym, your health is beyond you. That, that, that your family holding together and thriving as a unit is beyond you. Doesn't mean you don't make an investment. It doesn't mean that you, you don't go and love ferociously, but it does mean it's beyond you. You can't hold your family together. You can't hold your business together. You can't hold the economy together. But there is one that is far greater than you so that suffering brings you to the end of your rope and he brings the church to the end of all of her schemes and to the end of all of her plans and to the ends of all of her strategies and says, will you trust me? Will you go where I'm leading? Will you rest in my undeniable sovereignty? Will you rest in my sweet and painful providence? And this morning, I wonder if you will. I wonder if you will. 
I wonder if you're in a season in which the Lord is bringing a humility in your life that will be a sweet brokenness as it returns you to him, as it restores your faith and your confidence in him. And it's this thought process that leads to the message that Paul shares as he goes to all the churches. That Paul goes and he, as he retraces all of his bloody step, limping as he, as he goes, that he has a particular purpose and a particular message in mind. That he goes, and it says that he goes, that he might encourage the saints. That he might strengthen the saints. And he encourages and he strengthens the saints by giving them a message and then giving them elders. Isn't that ironic? Like, we see that right here. Why does he give them elders, by the way? This is a great opportunity to talk, to this, talk about this. God gives the church elders so that there are men in the church that will go and lay on the cross with you. So that there are those in the church that will go and will lay on the cross with you and hurt with you and be afflicted as you are afflicted and bear the burden as you have been burdened and so that they can come to you with the message of the gospel and repeat this message to you time and again and administer it to your soul. So what we see is that suffering finds its purpose in the kingdom. Suffering finds its purpose in the kingdom. That's the message. He says, through many tribulations... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that brings me back to where we started. Brokenness in the will of God. Being broken, experiencing suffering, experiencing affliction, right in the center of where God would have for you to be. And what Paul's message to you, and what Paul's message was those days in Galatia, is that God is working through our suffering to end our suffering. You can almost hear the words of Jesus as Paul spoke, can't you? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So daily, we take up our crosses and we endure the persecution that comes from following Christ and the pain that comes from the brokenness of the world and the injustice that we experience from living among sinners. But we do all, we do it all with a certain hope that God is moving us toward an eternal end. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message that the elders repeat to us, that God is at work sanctifying me and shaping me for his own kingdom purpose with my own kingdom identity. That he is bringing me back to those blessed statements, those beatitudes which Jesus launched into in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's accomplishing those blessed ends through my suffering. That our suffering is creating in us softer hearts and poorer spirits and meekness that finds its blessing in Christ. That it's creating in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that only the kingdom of God can satisfy. Has America been hungrier than this lately? Has America been thirstier than this lately? It's making us merciful where we were once ruthlessly selfish and pure in heart where we always operated with an ulterior motive. God is working through our suffering to prepare for us the glory that we're to receive, to store for us crowns that we can enjoy forever. God is working through our suffering that we might know the fullest degree of blessing in his kingdom and so that we might help others experience and enjoy a similar the word that he uses there for tribulation, it refers to a wide spectrum of human suffering throughout the scripture. 
Sometimes it refers to persecution. Sometimes it refers to famine. Sometimes it refers to decaying bodies. Sometimes it refers to extreme poverty. And he says that through the kingdom, this is the path that, this is what the path looks like. That, that if you're going to get where God would have you to go, this is the painful street that you'll walk. And yet remarkably, God did not stay upon his throne and enjoy all the glory while we remained down here and endured all the suffering. That our God came to us. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that every bit of human suffering that you know, and every bit of human suffering that I know, that every bit of hardship that you have faced, every, every bit of the tears that you have cried, all of the sweat that has come across your brow has come across the very brow of God Almighty. That Jesus came not just to suffer, but Jesus came that he might overcome suffering. So that for who all would come to him, they can be suffering, that they can be certain that their suffering will one day turn to glory. And that is what brothers and sisters sent all of those Christians so long ago right into the midst of the turmoil. That is what caused them to risk their own infection and their own affliction to nurture to those who were there. It is because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.